massive Russian aerial assaults across multiple regions of Ukraine. 43 missiles were launched by Russian forces throughout Ukraine. Various regions were under attack, east, west and central part of Ukraine the most. Plus, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky in Washington makes his case to Congress for continued U.S. support. There was a single sentence that summed it all up, and I'm quoting him verbatim. Mr. Zelensky said, if we don't get the aid, we will lose the war. And later in the program, a disturbing campaign to force Ukrainians to become Russian citizens. Today is Thursday, September 21st. From the Voice of America, this is Flashpoint Ukraine. Good evening, I'm Lori London in Washington. President Volodymyr Zelensky made a whirlwind return visit to Washington on Thursday to shore up U.S. support for Ukraine. Delivering an upbeat message on the war's progress, he faced new questions from a number of Republicans, like Senator Josh Hawley, about the flow of American dollars that have helped keep his troops in the fight against Russian forces. We're not being generous. It's the American people's money. And they spent $115 billion of it. And so far, they have basically nothing to show for it. And they're going to ask for a heck of a lot more. $24 billion is not the end. Not even close. White House National Security Spokesman John Kirby told reporters in response to that argument. Do you think that the cost of supporting Ukraine is high now? Just ponder how exorbitantly higher it would be in blood and treasure if we just walk away and let him take Ukraine, all of it. And then he's left in a much stronger position. And oh, by the way, right up on to the shores uh, of NATO territory. Still, many Republicans, like Texas Congressman Michael McCall, agree support for Ukraine should continue. They need it, um, and they're going to get it. I, I, I said, you know, the majority of the majority support this. I know there's some dissension on both sides, but I said a war of attrition is not going to win this. And that's what Putin wants, because he wants to break the will of the American people and the Europeans. We can't afford a war of attrition. We need a plan for victory, and we need to do it soon. Zelensky also met with President Biden at the White House and spoke with military leaders at the Pentagon. Meanwhile, during Wednesday's meeting of the United Nations Security Council, Russia's war in Ukraine took precedence in the speeches of world leaders who have been pulled into the conflict in different capacities. VOA's Veronica Balderas Inglesias took note of what was said and files this report from New York. Despite Russia voicing its strong opposition and in compliance with the organization's rules, Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky was the first leader to address the United Nations Security Council's meeting Wednesday. He didn't just condemn Moscow's invasion of his country, but also the council's veto system that, in his view, enables it and called for reforms. If it is impossible to stop the war because all efforts are vetoed by the aggressor, all those who condone the aggressor. There is a need for a system to prevent aggression through early response to actions violating territorial integrity and sovereignty of states. Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov defended his country's military operations and turned the criticism on those supporting Ukraine. 
The collective West, led by the United States, arbitrarily assumed the rank of arbiter of the destinies of all mankind and, overwhelmed by a complex of exclusivity, began to increasingly ignore the legacy of the founding fathers. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken decried Russia's belligerence as a clear violation of the U.N. Charter. Some argue that continuing to stand with Ukraine and holding Russia accountable distracts us from addressing other priorities, like confronting the climate crisis, expanding economic opportunity, strengthening health systems. That is a false choice. We can and we must do both. We are doing both. China opted to highlight its mediation efforts. The core message is facilitating talks for peace. After underlining his organization's commitment to the sovereignty, independence and territorial integrity of Ukraine, UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres called for restraint. This war is already causing limitless suffering. Its continuation risks further perilous escalation. There is never an alternative to dialogue, diplomacy and a just peace. Guterres added the United Nations will continue working toward a peaceful resolution to the conflict in line with the UN Charter, international law and the resolutions of the General Assembly. Veronica Valderas Iglesias, VOA News, the United Nations. Ukrainian officials said Thursday that Russian forces carried out aerial attacks on multiple cities overnight, killing at least two people. Ukraine's military described the Russian action as a massive missile attack on the civilian infrastructure on a number of regions. Anna Chernikova in Kyiv joins us for an update. The latest attack was one of the biggest attack. It was already confirmed that uh, 43 missiles were launched by Russian forces uh, on the territory of oh. Ukraine and uh, various regions were under attack. East, west uh, uh, and central part of the sea of Ukraine the most, but also the north part of the country. At this point, uh, this was the first attack in six months that was targeting energy infrastructure as well. We have confirmation that 36 uh, missiles out of 43 were destroyed by air defense. However, there are heats, unfortunately. Some heats were in the west part of the country and central part of, of the country, which was energy infrastructure, as well as civilian infrastructure. Also, the city of Kiev was under attack, and at least 20 missiles were destroyed in the area of Kiev and Kiev region. For the moment, there is confirmation of at least seven people injured in, in Kiev due to the fall of debris of these missiles. Also, city of Cherkasy, which is in the central part of the country, was under attack and at least five people were injured. The city of Rivne and Lviv region as well, so this is a western part of the country, were also under attack. Uh, and uh, the city of Kharkiv, six hits were in the city of Kharkiv alone. Uh, definitely the night was very tough around Ukraine. Can you tell us a little bit about any specifics on civilian infrastructure and energy infrastructure that might have been hit? Uh, yeah, well, in terms 
terms of energy infrastructure, it was no uh, details provided, but some areas uh, are lacking electricity at the moment. And also some industrial uh, facilities were damaged uh, in different areas and some private areas, some residential buildings in private sectors. Pretty rough night all over the country. And I understand there's also a, a, a special Ukrainian operation happening in Crimea. What can you tell us about that? Yeah, actually, at the same time, the night of 21st of, of September, Ukrainian armed forces confirmed that Ukraine launched a special operation in Crimea, uh, particularly uh, on the military air base next to the city of Saki in Crimea. And this is something that, that is told uh, unofficially behind the scenes that Ukrainian forces managed to attack 12 fighting jets as well as artillery system and a training base in that area, in that location. According to information which is coming through different sources, again, we cannot verify it independently at this point, but apparently the hits were successful, at least some of the hits, and uh, Ukrainian forces managed to seriously damage Russian uh, military equipment. Anna Chernikova reporting for VOA from Kiev. Poland will no longer be arming Ukraine as it focuses on building up its own stocks of weapons, that according to its prime minister on Wednesday. Poland has been one of Ukraine's staunchest allies since Russia invaded the country in February 2022. But the countries have fallen out over Ukrainian grain exports after Warsaw extended a ban on them. This Gdynsk resident is hoping the neighbors can work out their differences quickly. I think uh, we should more focus on what to do from now on, from the situation, rather than to think too long uh, who is guilty. Because once we start to think who is guilty of the situation, uh, it's very likely that we will find that the part of the guilt is on our side. And the same about the Ukrainians. I think that the thinking in a, a guilt category is not productive in this situation. And I really wish that uh, our goodwill, both from the uh, ordinary Ukrainian citizens and the citizens of Poland will be visible again and we will come through this conflict. Warsaw's stance towards Kyiv shifts just before an election. Poland holds a parliamentary election on October 15th and the ruling Nationalist Law and Justice Party has come in for criticism from the far right for what it says is the government's subservient attitude to Ukraine. You're listening to VOA's Flashpoint Ukraine. I'm Lori London. Ukrainians living in Russian-occupied parts of Ukraine are being forced to assume Russian citizenship or face harsh retaliation, that according to a U.S.-backed study by the Conflict Observatory Program at Yale University's Humanitarian Research Lab. I spoke with the lab's executive director, Nathaniel Raymond. What can you tell us about the findings of this report and this research? What we found in our report is that the Russian government is engaged in what can be called a program of passportization, meaning that those Ukrainians in areas like Zaporizhia and Mariupol are being increasingly required to have a Russian passport to do basic things such as open up a um, utility account for electricity, to access medical care, to be able to register a newborn child, and to be able to own property. Why this is so disturbing is that A, it's against international law 
to force people who are occupied uh, during a time of war to basically renounce their citizenship in order to access basic needs. But the second reason this is so disturbing is the research shows this increasingly is being ordered from the Kremlin level. And there's basically a time clock where if those in the occupied areas don't accept this requirement by July of 2024, then they could be forcibly deported into Russia or they could be arrested for not having a Russian passport. And so basically, they are pretty much being forced into this because if, if they don't comply, they don't eat, they don't be able to get the basic services like you were just saying. And then even worse, they could face deportation. What if they were to just leave and and go to another part of Ukraine that isn't occupied? Is that a possibility or are they sort of trapped there because that's their home? In order to go to another part of Ukraine, they would have to cross the front line, which is basically impossible. So for those in places like Zaporizhia, Donetsk and Luhansk, um, they're effectively trapped. And the reality here is that if they don't accept uh, this passport uh, requirement uh, that for them and their families, um, they will be effectively um, stateless in their own country. It sounds like a very traumatic thing for any human being to have to go through to wipe out your actual nationality. I'm sure that's leaving a lot of people traumatized. What do you think the pretext for this is? Something larger for Russia. Why do you think that this is something that they're taking on so seriously? As we have documented in our other reports, including our February report on the forced uh, abduction, deportation, and adoption of Ukrainian children. This is part of a broader campaign of Russification to attempt to basically end Ukrainian national identity. This is just one element of a broader campaign that includes the forced movement of children into Russia and Belarus. It is also part of a effort to basically make Ukrainian national identity something that is impossible to uh, have or express in Russian occupied territory. You mentioned this is definitely a violation of international law. The International Criminal Court is already, you know, investigating Russia for the deportation of children. What about this particular situation with passportization? Are they looking into that as well? I can't comment on current investigations by the International Criminal Court, but they have already indicted on one element of this, which is forced deportation of children and transfer, meaning movement from one national group to our ethnic group to another, they've already indicted Putin and Maria Lvova Belova on those crimes. And so their first indictments in the case of Ukraine were elements of this campaign. And so that right there is a very strong message from the ICC. I think we should expect further legal action by the international community and domestically within Ukraine to hold Russia accountable for basically an effort to destroy the idea of Ukrainian citizenship. If these Ukrainians are forced into this in a Russian-occupied town that gets retaken by Ukraine or the war ends and Ukraine is still intact, will these people be able to reclaim their identity? That is an open question. I don't know the answer to that, but it's 
essential that Russia follows the law, including the Hague Convention, the Geneva Convention, and uh, stops forcing Ukrainian people to accept Russian passports and renounce Ukrainian citizenship because A, it's illegal, but B, they have a right to be able to retain their original citizenship. And part of what I think Russia is trying to do is to complicate any future state where these people are trying to reintegrate into Ukraine. That, I think, is part of their intent. Thank you so much for taking the time. We really appreciate your insights on this. Thank you. Nathaniel Raymond, Executive Director at Yale University's Humanitarian Research Lab. As Russia makes significant gains in its disinformation campaigns in Africa, experts say civil society groups and private organizations may hold the key to counter such propaganda. VOA Steve Karish spoke with our colleague, Salem Solomon, for insights. It's all multifaceted uh, kind of approach. Russia has had this approach for quite some time. So Russia's increased use of disinformation campaigns in Africa, particularly exploiting political instability in regions like the Sahel, uh, you know, with coups that we've seen in Burkina Faso and Mali and Niger and more recently in Central Africa with Gabon, is that, you know, most experts highlight that, that Moscow's rapid propaganda successes on the continent uh, is tied to all this disinformation campaign, very organized campaign. And then they question Russia's true intentions because um, it has limited material wealth or infrastructure to offer Africa. In fact, uh, uh, you know, they export, obviously they export arms, but when it comes to commercial exchange between Russia and African countries, it's very, very low. Um, and so other experts also emphasize the need uh, um, for mechanisms to hold Russia accountable for its disinformation activities, because before any instability, uh, it really uh, unleashes the disinformation campaign on several countries. Uh, and, and, and experts have said, you know, empowering civil society, uh, private organizations and community groups uh, to counter Russian disinformation might be uh, a way to combat this uh, deluge of basically disinformation that's going on on the continent. Um, but yeah, that is one of the, the main focus. Disinformation is the main focus in which that Russia has seen, quote unquote, and I, I you know, attribute this to experts, they say this is successful because they've seen results as a result of uh, their uh, organized disinformation campaigns. So are you saying that disinformation, the propaganda coming from Russia, is responsible for the coup and responsible for the instability? Or are the Russians going into these unstable areas and trying to win influence using the propaganda and the misinformation? Well, it's part of their uh, strategy. I mean, the thing is, disinformation, it's just so hard to connect the, the, the what, what results, uh, what follows, which one comes first and what follows. But what we've seen, and we've seen research from the Africa Center for Strategic Studies and others, think tanks and research groups and academics that have looked into this, uh, the main important thing is that Russia's interference in African democracies or exploiting insta uh, you know countries that have instability is the way that they approach it and they they have different strategies in undermining uh, democratic processes in the continent for instance you know they employ various tactics disinformation campaigns being one of them but they support autocratic leaders and the uh, provision of like you know military or paramilitary assistance 
uh, to destabilize these African co- countries. And you've seen it. We've seen it in Mali. We've seen it in Burkina Faso. We're, 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 we're seeing it now currently in Niger, although there's a lot of uncertainty there. But all this to say that, you know, in order to combat such uh, disinformation, a lot of experts say that there is a need for African governments or international partners to recognize this issue and that address it as a multifaceted uh, nature in which Russia approaches these or its interference on the continent, you know, and, uh, and the importance of maybe strengthening democratic institutions or promoting transparency uh, to safeguard the continent's democratic future. Salem Solomon is a senior editor with VOA's Africa Division. Salem, thanks for your analysis tonight. Thank you for having me. With the lessons from last winter still fresh, Ukrainians are preparing for wintertime power outages caused by Russian attacks. Lija Bakaletz brings us this story from Kiev. Marketing specialist Darina Chernomoritz and her husband are stocking up for the winter. She started with one of the most essential items, food, and has been busy canning. This is a mix of family recipes, says Chernomoritz. She counted that she had made about 40 cans of cucumbers, tomatoes and papers. Chernomoritz says this year she is taking the preparation process more seriously and planning more carefully. She learned the hard way last winter when Russian forces attacked Ukraine's energy infrastructure and caused blackouts, the longest lasting for two days. Chernomoritz remembers they walked for five kilometers to get the signal and get in touch with her mother to find out that everything was fine with her. It was difficult because of the lack of water and heating and the total isolation. The stove in the apartment is electric, so a gas camping stove will prove handy during a power outage. So I can make oatmeal with this water, open my canned cucumbers and have a dinner that does not require much cooking, says Chernomoritz. The couple has already secured a supply of drinking water and bought gas canisters and battery-powered lamps. Evgeny Privachok, the owner of a coffee shop in Kyiv, is also prepared with a similar list of emergency items. This is a huge 5.3-kilowatt diesel generator, he explains. Primachuk opened his business in September 2022, and just three weeks later Russian forces carried out their first massive bombing of Ukraine's power grid. This generator saved his shop. When the outages began, nobody understood what was happening, says Primachok, because everything was gone. No network, no light, no heating. He was lucky to find the generator. Demand of them was high. Having electricity, his coffee shop became popular. People came here to work and warm up. Evgeny Primachok remembers that people were everywhere. They sat in the corridor, on the stairs, there were about 50 visitors at one time. This year Primachok wants to be even more prepared. We have cleaned the generator, he said, changed the oil and gotten some fuel cans ready. Our electricians assured us that the connections are in excellent condition. A Ukrainian IT company, U-Control, took things a step further. Last fall, after several power outages, they realized they 
couldn't keep working in a large business center, so the team rented a house where its employees could live and work. Irina Zavorova, head of the company's employee department, explains. We realized that we could provide a bomb shelter here and be independent. We can install a generator, two, three, ten, as many as we need, without lengthy negotiation with the business center. This year, a team bought an additional generator, filled a backup water supply, and stocked up on firewood. Irina Zamarueva said that they have a very powerful gas boiler. If the electricity disappears, it will be warm here for a long time. But in addition, they have a fireplace and can use it. Having survived last winter, they will be ready for this one too. Lisa Bakalets, Freeway News, Kyiv. And that'll do it for us today, but stay up to date with continuing coverage on Ukraine and news from around the world 24 hours a day at voanews.com. And on social media, just follow VOA News. On behalf of all of us at VOA, we thank you so much for listening. Until next time, I'm VOA's Lori London. This is the voice of America, Washington, Papa, Bozette, D.C.